Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Commander Greg Swindon. 100 years ago, during a port visit to Gibraltar, the cruiser HMO Sydney embarked food and stores. Among the food were casks of beef stamped 1815. As one sailor remarked, you could boil it, you could bake it, you could fry it, you could tow it astern, but you just couldn't eat it. Food in the Royal Australian Navy has changed greatly since those days, but the importance of food for the well-being and morale of those who serve in the Navy has not. As the RAN's 1970 cookery manual stated in its introduction, the moral fibre of the whole crew can be affected by the meals. To tell this fascinating story of food in the Royal Australian Navy, I'm joined today by Commander Amy Blacker. Amy joined the Navy in 1998 and recently retired this year. As a junior supply officer, she served in HMA ships Adelaide, Anzac and Melbourne. Amy was also later the decommissioning maritime logistics officer of the frigate HMAS Melbourne. As well as travelling globally in staff roles, Amy was deployed as a logistician and personnel capability manager throughout the Middle East. She was awarded a conspicuous service cross for outstanding achievement in workforce reform. She is currently co-writing a book on food in the RAN. Also joining us is Mrs Melissa Bowers, and she is the other co-author of the book on food in the RAN. Melissa is a public servant working in naval workforce planning, and both her husband and daughter are serving members of the Navy. She has written many technical publications for Navy and is now turning her passion for writing into works on her own family, history, cookbooks and children's picture books. Commander John Goss, who joined the Navy in 1964 at the age of 15, is also joining us today. He became a Navy cook in 1966 and served for many years in British and Australian submarines. He later became a supply officer and maritime logistics officer, retiring in 2021 after 57 years of service. He is the author of the Submariner's Cookbook. Also joining us is Warrant Officer Michael Eilickson, who joined the Navy in 1986 and also became a cook. His first sea posting was to HMAS Torrens in 1988 with John Goss as his supply officer. More recently, Michael has served in the landing helicopter dock HMAS Canberra as the commissioning crew. He's also served in HMA ships Brisbane and Sydney. Upon promotion to warrant officer, he was posted to HMA Cerberus with the ADF School of Catering, where students are now trained through technical and further education. Michael will join the sea training group in January 2023 as the fleet warrant officer chef to aid and mentor young chefs at sea. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. First, to set the scene, I'd like to go back to the early years of the REN and the beginning of World War I. Amy, how was food provided to ships in particular, as well as ships when they sailed from their home ports? To set the scene, though, I think we need to acknowledge the Royal Navy had learned much about the importance of regular daily rations. They had experience with storing provisions and had also experimented greatly with food preservation techniques. Uh, per these Royal Navy practices, the Australian Navy originally relied on food brought on board in bulk during pre-deployment preparations. July 1914 was a tense and disruptive time and we should get the sense that purses throughout the fleet were scrambling, pun intended, to store ships to capacity. The rations they gathered were old, 1815, hard and very much of the time sustaining but not truly nourishing. Beyond home port, arrangements then included pre-positioning food in forward ports of call, if they were known, of course, and consignment in other vessels. Now this meant availability and it made storing plans and forward operating less problematic, which is a great policy direction in peacetime, but wartime uncertainties certainly mean this practice does not translate well at all. It makes sailors' daily diets very, very plain. Of course, then beyond home port, another option is local purchasing to supplement as much as possible, but of course that's much less reliable. 
Now, the Australian Navy's role before World War I was to protect Australia's ports and trade and shipping routes, and that role obviously changed very quickly in 1914. You mentioned HMA Sydney 1, and we can consider her as a case study. She was in the vicinity of Thursday Island and Townsville when war was declared, and when first deployed, the storeship Sirena was in her company. On the 3rd of August 1914, the Townsville Daily Bulletin reported she had 14,000 tins and cases of petroleum and 300 cans of crude oil on board, which the Admiralty may need. Sydney was involved in the Rabaul landing before detaching to, to, re to return to Australia to become one of the first Anzac convoy escorts and onwards to those delightful cans stamped 1815. Now, before the Australian Navy, the Commonwealth Naval Forces and Colonial Navies had established ship handlers, ports, trade, travel and shipping routes throughout the Pacific. An example was the Australasian United Steam Navigation Company, uh, established in 1887 and trading on the Australian coast and throughout the South Pacific. In terms of port facilities, for example, um, in preparation for the Australian Navy, in 1910, Admiral Sir Reginald Henderson observed that Thursday Island and Port Darwin offered strategic positions for fleet secondary bases. Among other key logistics requirements, he also considered these locations optimal for storing provisions. Tins of course. Sustaining these routes were pivotal to successful war outcomes. The stoppage of trade to the German Pacific Islands at the very outset of the war had an immediate effect on availability of food in places like Anger Gap and Nauru. Now, these kinds of disruptions to local communities impacted the Admiralty's operational plans in terms of reducing the collateral impacts and attention was then turned to Apia, Aden and Rabaul. So another resupply option was consignment in another Navy vessel, including colliers and other merchant vessels at the time of World War One, Contract chartering and conveyancing were the bulk transport options of the time. As the war progressed, the neutrality of some locations combined with their availability of provisions saw them host to both German and Allied navies at different times. For example, during November 1914, Vice Admiral Patey and his squadron visited Galapagos, Ecuador for its numerous good anchorages and plenty of meat and vegetables. The Leipzig had anchored in the same location in September that year. Local procurement was another way for ships to obtain food, though it is reliant on seasonal availability and negotiation. Even when fresh meat and vegetables could be obtained, there is evidence that this didn't always occur. Wireless telegraph operator John Brown kept a journal during World War I, and it makes for enlightening reading. He remarks the captain and ship's officers of HMAS Protector always had fresh produce, while the Blue Jackets, the sailors, did not. His journal continues with joining the HMAS Warrigo, and he makes notes of oranges and mandarines, oysters, lemons and pineapples as being highlights of visits to the orchards on Dunk Island and Clump Point. Scoring bullock or potatoes ashore was always a welcome change, as was the opportunity to be ashore in locations with restaurants. The Chinese restaurants and Sandakan rated a mention. So from all of these examples, I think we get the sense the Australian Navy very much followed the Royal Navy's operational planning for food during World War I. Thanks, Amy. Melissa Bowers, we've heard a little bit about what sort of food was eaten uh, by members of the RAN, but what, what was the food that actually was available uh, 100 years ago? Hi, Greg. Thank you for having me here today. Food in the RAN was very traditional 100 years ago and heavily influenced by the Royal Navy and British culture and tradition. So it was very much meat and three vegetables. There was limited technology back then to allow for the same refrigeration and storage techniques we have today. And of course, there were no prepackaged foods, so everything was made from scratch using whole ingredients. Ingredients were also cyclical, depending on the location of the ship or which ports the ships pulled into, as Amy just mentioned. Meat was very important, especially for morale. Smaller ships only had room for a small meat safe for their refrigeration and would run out of meat and dairy products quickly, and salt was used to preserve the meat that they carried on board. Larger ships, like the cruisers, such as HMAS Australia, were able to store more food because they were fitted with a cool room and they used to hang whole carcasses in there, cutting up the carcasses that they needed to feed the ship's company. A practice that went on right up until and during World War II. The larger ships had butchers on board who would cut up the meat and generally the officers got the better cuts, leaving the lesser cuts to the ship's company. So the lower down the rank you were, the lower down the cut of meat you got for dinner. 
and the butchers used up all the carcasses back then, including tripe, kidneys, liver, lamb's fry, lamb's brain, and they also made all their sausages on board. Meals were really based on what was available or left over due to the length of the deployment. But you'll hear more about that from John soon. In good old blighty tradition, potatoes were a key staple. Fresh potatoes didn't last long due to the environmental conditions on the ship because they were exposed to the elements of hot weather and hot stuffy storage conditions in the lower decks. So potatoes were generally kept in hessian bags and stored in the spud locker on the upper decks because as they would rot, they would give off a pungent smell and noxious gases, which was not good for the sailors' morale, let alone their health. Other hard vegetables like pumpkins and carrots, vegetables that had a longer shelf life were usually present. Fresh and dried nuts were also available and greens such as peas and beans when available were also popular. And once the fresh veggies were gone, it was onto the tins. Other tinned food included spam, sausages, oh could you imagine sausages in a tin, tinned fruits and of course tinned fish such as salmon. Although fresh fish was also served, often caught off the side of the ship by the crew, which was called a fish ex, and a huge morale boost for the ship's company. I actually have a photo of my grandfather standing proudly next to a hanging 198 pound groper caught with his mate whilst on deployment in the Pacific in HMAS La Trobe in 1940. Other foods included breads, cakes and biscuits were commonly made on board so flour was an important staple. They were served daily with butter and other dairy such as milk and eggs which leads me to a hilarious story about eggs I heard recently on board HMAS Torrens. HMAS Torrens had a chicken coop on board and the stewards would look after them. They would feed the chickens scraps from the galley and of course the ship's company would eat the eggs. And when the chickens were no longer laying or for whatever, whatever other reason were ready to move on to their next life, aka the dinner table, they would become the delicacy of the day. Well, one day, the cooks had prepped one of the chickens and was cooking it in the oven in the galley for the officer's lunch. Now, you can imagine the sweet, beautiful waft of fresh roasting chicken billowing out of the galley was way too tempting for a couple of the sailors. So when the cook left the galley for a brief moment, the sailors pounced, stealing the cooked chook and sneaking it down to the lower decks where they proudly ate the entire chicken. Of course, they were found out and their punishment they had to stand on the upper decks for a week chanting, I stand here because I stole a chook. And the cook who left the galley, he had to stand with them, chanting, I am here because I let them steal the chook. This is way too funny, but I've been told by a trusted source this is a true story. To sum up food in the RAN a hundred years ago, I refer to an article in the Northwestern Courier in Narrabri, country New South Wales, on the 31st of July, 1924. It's an article by Mr A.M.C. Sober, a proud ex-Navy man who tells us that a typical day's meals consisted of the following, in his words. At 06.30, cooks of the mess received cocoa for the messmen with milk and sugar added. Breakfast at 8 o'clock consists of porridge, sausages and tea with milk and sugar added. Dinner provides either of the following, curry and rice, bread and butter, roast potatoes, meat with pudding to follow, and tea. Tea was bread and butter, tea, rations left over from the morning, corned beef, jam and cheese. Men on night watch can always get cocoa when coming off, as is the case with the middle in the middle of the morning watch. In HMAS Australia in the earlier part of the 20th century, it was strongly recognised the relationship between good food and the health of its ship's company went hand in hand. This was learned through the Royal Navy since the Battle of Trafalgar. And in my research I learned that during the Battle of Trafalgar, the British fleet had a sick to healthy ratio of approximately 25% to 75%. However, the French and Spanish ships were more like a 50-50 ratio of sick to healthy crew. So if these statistics are true, the British literally had more healthy men on board their ships at the time to fight and win at sea. Thanks, Melissa. John Goss, what were the various sailor categories or specialisations related to food in the Navy? Uh, obviously, we know of cooks, but 
who else was there uh, assisting the cooks in getting the meals out on a daily basis? Uh, thank you, Greg, for the opportunity uh, to be with the team today. Look, in answer to your question, uh, there was initially a significant amount of support <laughs> to the cooks. Of course, uh, what we the, the branch that we still have today supporting the cooks are stewards, the steward branch, which predominantly look after the the officers uh, in around the meal time and just the general welfare well-being of the uh, of the officers on board. But we also had butchers. Uh, the larger ships carried a butcher, and the the uh, very early days, the meat was brought on board in whole carcasses, as has been mentioned by Melissa. Uh, and the cooks, so the cooks were a very important support element. Uh, the butchers, sorry, were a very support important support element to the cooks, uh, and uh, in the preparation and the choices of meats that were available through the various messes, the officers' mess for the officers, sailors for the sailors. The We've heard the word mentioned a couple of times already, the Persa. The Persa, the name Persa originated way back with the Royal Navy and is still a term that you'll hear today if, you, if you're lucky enough to go on a cruise on a merchant ship. The Persa is in fact the naval supply officer and Persa was a term used by the sailors for many, many, many years, but they turned it into the Pasa. You will know, hear older sailors talking about the Pasa and that was the supply officer. But supporting the supply officer, supporting the cook, again, was another branch, the Vittling branch, a group, a branch of sailors that ordered in, stored, accounted for when we were rationing or when we were uh, accounting through the financial system, the Vittlers managed that. They, got, they managed the stores, they got them to the cooks to support the menu that was put together. The Vittling branch was disbanded uh, around the 1990s and the cooks took over that role. So today, Supporting the cooks, they're pretty much out there on their own. They are their own account. They are account for what they use, the menu, the provisions, in their own right. We still have the stewards, as I said, to support them, but the uh, all the food products brought on board the ship, stored, right to the putting the meal on the plate, uh, is now run by our cooks. Thanks, John. Uh- I know we had the specialist butchers, but I don't think we had specialist bakers. I think that was a, a job that was a, a cook's role to do as well. Yeah, that is correct. The uh, part of the cook's training was uh, to baking. Uh, and because fresh bread in the environment uh, in early days, and even today, it just, just doesn't last very long. So you'll find uh, a role of the cooks working through the evening, baking bread, bread rolls for the next few days. And uh, so the role of the cook is also, yes, the baker. Thanks, John. <clears throat> Another one for you, John, if I may. Uh, for nearly the first half of the Navy's history, ships employed uh, a thing called mess deck catering or, uh, or messing. Can you explain uh, some of your experiences as a young sailor as how this operated? Yes, I did experience this uh, when I was on board HMAS Anzac in 1966 as a a crew member, but without any skills. So I hadn't actually done my cook's, cook's course at that time. We went from recruit training, in my case, junior recruit, recruit training, directly to the ship for 12 months before we went to do our category course. On board uh, HMAS Anzac, uh, my experiences in this mess deck catering were that in your mess deck, the first thing you would do first thing in the morning, uh, a, uh, an announcement would be made to lash and stow. And that was to break down your hammock, lash it up and stow it in, in a bin. 
And that would clear the mess deck for, for you to use through the day, whether it was just to sit and read or to have your meals. The meals were delivered via a member of that mess deck from the galley to your mess deck, and the meals were actually taken down in your mess deck. The start of that process, a couple of members of the mess would go to the Vittling store uh, with some buckets and some containers, pick up the various uh, items for the meal of that occasion, whether it's breakfast, lunch or dinner, uh, go to the galley. The galley would put it together. Those people would take it back down to the mess for you to sit, put on your plate and eat down in your mess deck. You can imagine there was no uh, heating to maintain the heat within the meal. So after a short period of time, your meal uh, wouldn't, uh, you'd be eating a cold meal. Certainly those that come later would be eating cold meals. The cleaning up of that was done within that mess deck as well, washing the plates, washing all the cutlery, washing the containers. So the mess deck was not only your eating space, it was your cleaning space, your eating space, your recreation space. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, John. I now like to go to Michael Olickson and say, what was the... We've heard what John's just said about how the junior sailors would be eating, but what was the arrangement for the officers? Firstly, thanks for having me, Greg. This is a good little follow-on from what John has just mentioned. The general mess menu and dining was totally separate from wardroom messing indeed. And, uh, due to the service provided and the menus on offer, the officers were under what was known as the repayment messing system, which was generally a, a pay-as-you-go affair. The meal rates didn't differ too greatly from the sailors, however, there were enough for officers to receive better quality meals and the chefs were usually selected to work in wardroom galleys. The evening meal, for example, would consist of three courses with a super entree, the main, and then dessert with a few additional trimmings depending on the meal. These were provided with full table service by stewards and the table service was for all meals, of course, and the crockery was gold badged too, with the occasional silver service provided. The wardroom was a pretty stately section of the ship where the officers were able to dine and relax in comfort well removed from the general quarters and sailors' dining areas. And Michael, if I may, another question. An important element of the story of food in the Navy was how was it paid and accounted for? Can you briefly explain this aspect? I think there was, you know, there was an allowance per day for, for the junior sailors, but the officers were able to pay for extra food. How, how did that actually work? Absolutely, Greg, and you are correct with the daily rate being set for sailors. The capture of meal costs was primarily through the old system of rations and quarters, or R&Q, and this was a daily rate payment deducted from a member's fortnightly pay packet, as it was back in the day of cash payment in envelopes. The rations aspect was obviously for the food expected to be consumed by the member, and was set at a subsidised rate, and from memory it was around 5 to $7 per day when I joined, which wasn't a lot. This money would be paid through the system into the daily billing account for that unit, and the vittlers would order feed based on numbers accounted for. This is why they were also known as starvos. As previously noted, the officers paid through the repayment system via their mess bill. When at sea, you weren't required to pay R&Q and meals were funded through Navy's fleet budget, once again managed by Vittlers with a per person amount multiplied by crew size plus any sea riders or additionals. As cooks, based on the planned menu, we'd place an order through the Vittlers and they would in turn order through the providors, usually seeking the cheapest cut in price. This made the cook's job a challenge when attempting to make tripe palatable. These days, it is a senior cook or now ML chef, as John has already mentioned, that controls the vittling aspect with oversight from the logistics officer. John, back to you. While the uh, RAN followed the Royal Navy and the fundamentals of providing food in ships, did the actual food differ? Uh, I know that uh, the, the Brits used to be called kippers because they, they used to have kippers for breakfast and uh, I'm not sure whether that followed on into the REN, but what was the difference between the food that Royal Navy sailors would be eating and RAN sailors would be eating? Yes, thanks, Greg. Uh, fortunate enough uh, to have served both and cooked with the, RAN, uh, the Royal Navy and the REN and back in my time with the Royal Navy and the mid-1960s, within uh, the Royal Navy and uh, within that region, I say UK, Europe, they were still struggling uh, a little bit uh, after the, uh, the Second World War. And in fact, 
the products that were used within the galleys on, with the Royal Navy, a lot of that was held over products from rationing and stores that were used during the war. So some of the, many of the items were, I remember tins, and Melissa mentioned tin sausages, and for an Aussie, they were terrible. There was no way you could put a tin sausage between a slice of bread with a bit of tomato sauce and enjoy it. But the RN for many years, we're still using these tin products, uh, tomatoes, which they referred to as Aragonis. Uh, yes, sausages, but a lot of dehydrated products, uh, powdered products, uh, and tin meats. And I experienced uh, they did eat a lot of fish, much more fish than what we did in the Royal Navy, in the, in the Australian Navy. Um, every second Sunday on my submarine, the Royal Navy submarine I was on, we would have kippers for breakfast, but nothing else, just kippers. No bacon, no eggs, no alternative, kippers. And these kippers were dreadful. But the Royal Navy sailors loved them. So it would take nearly the whole fortnight to get the smell of the kippers out of the galley, and damn me, you've got to have, have them back on again. But so the food differ, difference was really based on the time that I served and with the Royal Navy um, and the difficulties that they were still going through after the Second World War. With the Australian Navy, we were so, so, so much luckier. Uh, around our all our Australian stations, around our ports around Australia, uh, and even over to our good friends over in New Zealand, the products that we could bring on board were really what you would find in your household at that particular time. The, we had an abundance of fresh vegetables, plenty of fresh meat, uh, and so many. So we were able to use a lot more fresh products for our cooking than the Royal Navy were for many, many years. And that there really was the difference between the two: the Royal Navy food and the food that we had in this served to our, our troops uh, throughout the period and beyond with the Australian Navy. But one of the things that I did experience in that very early beginning of the, uh, in my 60s and 70s, coming back to the Royal Australian Navy, there was still that hangover of the way we were grown up in that, well, the way we grew up in that period and what we were eating at home. And the expectation of a lot of our sailors joining the Navy was um, amongst the meals would be a, a significant amount of offal dishes, kidney, liver. We heard brains mentioned. They were the expectations of the sailors of the day that uh, they would be made, they would be available to them. A lot easier for our galleys on our shore establishments with a much bigger variety of food, when you got to our ships, our submarines, our patrol boats, the amount of stores that we could carry, and particularly the fresh stores that we could carry, was reduced dramatically, which really did impact on the range that we could put out there on the line for the sailors to enjoy. But throughout that early, early period, and for many, many years later, uh, the expectations of our customer being the crew, we tried to replicate, if that's if we can use that word, of what they had grown up on at home. The roasts, the meat and three veg, the roasts, um, and meals like that, that they have come from home to join the Navy for. And that's uh, what we would try to have available on the line for them. Things that they would identify one thing that used to happen, and I'm not sure that it still does today, when you when a sailor joins through recruit school, on the first few days that the sailors join, they would march them up to the galley and the chief cook would walk the sailors through the survey line and explain 
what some of the dishes are because we had this thing of putting white sauce and cheese on the top of cauliflower. There are many sailors out there that had had cauliflower at home, but not cauliflower or gratin. They wouldn't identify it, therefore they wouldn't put it on their plate. But there were many other dishes that we introduced the sailor to that was fundamentally the same as mum and dad would make at home, but we just added that little bit extra to it. Thanks, John. World War II presented immense challenges for the Royal Australian Navy to provide foods to its ships, especially over the immense distances of the Pacific Ocean. Amy, how did the Navy actually do this? Well, uh, Greg, look, they did what they could with what they had when they had it. The supply of fresh food remained a concern. Just as in World War I, the immense distances of the Pacific Ocean really remained a challenge for the provision of food in World War II. Uh, an example for you to consider, uh, a variance between platforms can always be observed and Mel gave a few examples earlier. As a task group case study, between October and December 1944, both Arunta and Warramunga were part of task group 77.3, the close covering group under Rear Admiral Berkey USN for the landings at Leyte Gulf in the Philippines. Both ships sailed from Manus Island on the 13th of October 44. Later in October, Arunta participated in the Battle of Cerigo Strait, and that same month a case of scurvy was apparently reported on board due to a lack of fresh vegetables. Both Arunta and Warramunga spent December 1944 at Manus Island. In contrast in to, to what happened in Arunta, an officer in HMAS Warramunga recorded that the standard of Christmas fare was excellent. Wherein World War I demonstrated the importance of the established food supply chains and the relationships throughout the Pacific, it also proved reliance on food preservation techniques. Similar trends continued into World War II, and though ships' refrigeration actual, not just the meat lockers, was, was, a, was a new capability, it was not incorporated fully into the Australian Navy ship design. Mind you, as early as 1904, the Royal Navy had recommended incorporating refrigeration and storage and baking facilities into ships' designs, but they wouldn't actually translate until the mid-century. In some ships, the design was such that food had to be carried across open well decks or quarter decks. Serving on board a fair mile motor launch during World War II, tinned food was often kept in the bilges. On the 14th of October 1939, on board HMS Stewart, no one save the ship's commanding officer had any idea of their destination, just that they were heading north. Stewart's supply chief petty officer Ken Sprague had crammed the galley and every conceivable locker, store and nook and cranny with as much fresh and packaged food as he could squeeze on board, which was a sure indication to everyone that they would be away for a very long time. So while in most instances the food supplied was adequate in quantity, the quality, the way it was prepared, cooked and served varied quite somewhat. Stewart served between Australia and the Pacific from April 1942. Just as in World War I, fresh food would be gone in about five days, after which there were dehydrated, salted and tinned supplies. Mel's mentioned that, John's mentioned that as well. The staples in World War II still included bully beef, what was known as bully beef. Navy beans were also very popular, even as a meat substitute, which I think is very interesting. And in 1942, Australian government contracts could be awarded to farmers per bushel for beans of 98% canning quality. And other tinned goods occasionally available included chocolates and cigarettes. Burns Philpin Co Limited were another operator like the one I mentioned earlier. They operated a monthly service from Melbourne to Darwin and Darwin to Singapore at the time of World War II. In 1941, one of their ships, the McCurr, was requisitioned by the Navy for use as what was called a Vittling Stores issue ship. These ships helped support operations across the vast distances of the Pacific. The McCurr served in Numea, Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, Philippines and everywhere in between. She had a mixed merchant and Navy crew providing food, beer and clothing, regularly resupplying in Brisbane and Sydney as well. 
I have another letter to an editor which was published in the Herald newspaper in 1945, which says, while our Navy is at sea, the men live on dehydrated foods and they do not grumble. But when they reach port, they expect to be fed plainly on fresh vegetables and meat. My brother and other sailors complain that they do not get enough to eat. And it was signed, Sailor's Sister. And I think from all of these excerpts and examples, we can get the sense of the immense challenge of distance and logistics planning during World War II. And you can also observe how the sailors' dietary preferences and expectations were starting to shift as well. Back to you, Greg. Thanks, Amy. Uh, we heard earlier from John Goss that sailors used to eat their meals in their mess decks, but this started to change during the second half of World War II. Melissa, can you explain the move from mess deck eating or messing to the cafeteria style of messing? Yes, Greg, it's quite interesting. So during World War II, HMAS Shropshire was the first Australian ship to have a cafeteria. HMAS Shropshire was gifted to the Royal Australian Navy from the British government in 1943 after the sinking of HMAS Canberra. But before she was gifted to the Royal Australian Navy, HMAS Shropshire was refit and it was during that refit that she was converted to have a cafeteria on board. And the benefits were seen very quickly on um, the combined messing of everybody being able to eat together at the same time, the way the galleys were run. A lot of those changes happened very quickly. And the, uh, the cafeteria was actually known as Otto's Grotto, which was named after the chief petty officer cook, Otto Smith, at the time. And as it was considered really important for ship's morale, the cafeterias were included in all future ship designs across the Royal Australian Navy. So a very significant turning point in moving from, as John told us, the earlier messing styles to the cafeteria style messing. Thanks, Melissa. After World War II, the Navy continued to serve in Asian waters as well as closer to home. Michael Olickson, did this affect the sailors' tastes and the meals served as they suddenly had access to what I would say different and foreign foods? Oh, for sure. This certainly set a new stand for food tastes and preferences with access to cheap meals in this region. This gave sailors the opportunity to expand their culinary experiences and still have a few beers quite cheaply. In Singapore, for example, the vicinity of the Sembawang and Chongpeng precincts being close to the vicinity of the wharf allowed access to these flavours, such as chilli crab, Singapore noodles and mihoon, though typically Malaysian, as it became a very cheap one-stop shop for many sailors when in Singapore, eat, drink and have a great night with shipmates. Even the spices of India gave rise to the sailors' appetites with the demand for these choices with continued deployments in the region. This also impacted on the menus as we evolved our skills as chefs and became more open to cuisine that was not the standard meat and three veg. And even over my time, there has been a great shift in menu options that still has a large sway toward the Asian region for chilies and curries. They're not comparable to the locals, of course. This also led to the cooks gaining knowledge of fragrances and the combinations of herbs and spices needed to recreate these dishes, as much as could be, and leaning toward the Western preference and palate for milder spices. Nonetheless, there is still a strong bond with a lot of the European foundations of the Australian diet that exists today. The diet of the average seller today is seen a desire to eat healthy options. They still have some of the old favourites and, and, uh, and chips. Everyone loves chips. We can serve any form of Asian dish with rice or noodles and sailors will inevitably take a load of chips as well if they're there. John, a question for you if I may. Uh, you've mentioned that you were a cook in submarines. Now, I imagine that being on board a submarine is significantly different than being on board a surface ship. Can you describe what the galley was like in a submarine? Yes, thanks, Greg. Uh, the galley on our <coughs> Oberon-class submarines, uh, the design was changed slightly to a similar class of submarine with the Royal Navy. They moved the galley uh, in the design to the forward section of the submarine, forward of the control room, meaning it was more readily available uh, for the larger portion of the crew that lived in the forage section of the submarine. The after mess deck, which was right down the very, very back end of the submarine, had still had some 20 sailors living there and carrying their plated meal was quite a challenge from the galley 
through the control room, through hatches, uh, engineering spaces, all the way back to the uh, to their mess to uh, sit down and eat their meal. And uh, if they were lucky enough, they arrived all the way back there and it was still sitting on their plate. But for the forage section, uh, which is some 60-odd members of the crew out of a, well, sorry, 40-odd yeah, members of the crew out of, out of say, of 60, a crew of 60, uh, the galley was just around the corner, if you like, and much easier, easier for them to get their meal. And therefore, they were getting, the meals were always plated for the individual. The individual went up to the galley and the meals were put on a plate for them and they went back to their mess deck, sat down and ate it. The, the galley itself, it's really to explain the size of the galley. If you just stand on one spot and reach around, you can put your hand in the sink to wash your, your trays and your plates and your saucers. You can reach over to the working bench and behind you when you're there, you can reach to the, uh, to the cooktop, the oven, the and the deep fryer. So the galley was all around you and within easy reach, a very, very small space. There was no electrical appliances to help you with your cooking. You didn't have a, an electric mix, a mix master, uh, so everything was done by hand. You're cutting, you're slicing, you're, you're uh, stirring. Uh, everything was done by hand in that very small space. As far as your waste was concerned, food waste was concerned, what would go down the muncher, which was built within the sink, into the drain of the sink? And this was like a, a mincer with water would turn up all the waste food and put it into a tank, holding tank, below down below the galley, and that would be pumped out when the occasion was right for the submarine. Other waste, tins were crushed, uh, paper, everything was put into a bag, and again, at the appropriate time, that when you were dived, of course, you couldn't go up and throw it over the side, you'd get a little bit wet, so it would be put into a, a tube. Tube would be shut down. Compressed air would throw it out into the water and we'd do those naughty things you're not supposed to do today and pollute the ocean. But that was the way that we used to get rid of our both our dry and wet waste on the, you know, from the galley. Thanks, John. Uh, so what sort of meals were actually uh, produced for the submariners and were there any favourites that uh, were a peculiarity to the submarine service? Yes, and again, I'll, I'll just talk about the, our Australian Navy submarines. Our submarines you know, have the availability. We've got good cool, cool and cold room spaces for the duration of the submarine that would be expected to be at C4. We could carry sufficient uh, frozen cool room product items within the cool room and in our dry stores to cover that period we'd be expected to be at C4. Fresh products, on the other hand, potatoes, fresh vegetables, it's always going to be a problem. And uh, your potatoes, your fresh vegetables would only last five, seven, eight days maybe uh, before you then had to revert to your uh, you're frozen. Again, we, we're now carrying uh, frozen vegetables. For a little, for some time there, we actually carried, we did experiment carrying frozen bread dough. Uh, it wasn't successful and it took up a huge amount of space. So the, the cooks of the submarine, as with our surface ships, uh, well, you, your fresh bread would run out, run out fairly quickly and through the evening, uh, the whole submarine would smell the cooking of fresh bread and the cook had to be very careful because as soon as he took the stuff out of his oven, hands would reach around and his bread rolls would disappear. But the at sea, and for the period the submarine was at sea, the cook's working day would be anything from 16 to hours in the galley, working in the galley, 
preparing three meals a day than having to bake bread. So they were long days and occasionally if the submarine uh, went to action stations, there were other duties you would have to do as well. As far as favourites are concerned, it's changed significantly over the last 50 years that I've been involved in either cooking or provisioning for meals on ships and submarines. In the 60s and 70s, as I had mentioned previously, uh, the favourites were uh, offal dishes, such as those sautéed kidneys, lamb's fried casserole, tripe, uh, sloppy dishes, uh, your curries, the sailors used to call them sloppy dishes, uh, tomato or gratin, known to the sailors as train smash, put that on toast, curries, again sloppies, juice stews, uh, and roasts, never failed to hit the mark. Again, back to our Australian submarines, we really were very, very lucky with the range of food that we could provide and provide that the sailors were used to. Nothing fancy, just good old-fashioned meat and veg uh, and those stews that they and curries that they were used to uh, from home. We move into the 70s. Asian dishes started to come. Our European dishes started to come in onto the menu. But again, in your submarines, carrying the variety of ingredients that you you needed to cook those dishes uh, wasn't that easy. So we would normally just stick with our everyday meat and three veg and those dishes that the sailors were uh, had grown up on and the, as best we could provide for them in a nice hot meal. As, as mentioned by Michael, sailors have always been partial to chips and rarely would a meal be offered where they weren't available. On your submarine, we had a little deep fryer, and yes, we could uh, we we could carry frozen chips, and we could have them have chips available for most meals of the day. During my time on HMAS Torrens, and I'm not sure whether Michael was still there with me at that time, but we had a defence food science dietary specialist come on board. And the first time, the first thing this particular person pointed out was the fact that we should not be giving chips to the sailors lunch and dinner every day, every day of the week. It's not good for them. However, it was suggested to him by the PO cook on board to go and have a chat with the sailors. What do they want? What would they like? And he come back with his tail between his legs after interviewing a few sailors and said to the PO cook, well, maybe best to leave the chips on the line as an option for the sailors. Yep, how dare you take the chips off? And it wasn't that they were having chips every meal, but it was an option for them. So, so chips stayed there for the troops. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, John. Yeah, I recall talking to a, a submariner friend of mine and he said that uh, they would often lose uh, uh, time on board the ship. They wouldn't know what day it was, but they certainly knew when they were um, ending the patrol because the meal would uh, generally be rice and chicken stock or uh, tinned peas and corn for the last two or three days they were at sea. So they knew they were on their way home because they had literally run out of food. I, I, one situation that I come across was... Uh, we, we actually run out of sugar about a week out and uh, we still had tea, coffee, but no sugar. And the sailors figured, well, jam's sweet. So they were actually a spoonful of jam in their tea to sweeten it up. Uh, <laughs> they'd, they'd, a sailor would find a way. <laughs> Thanks, John. Uh, Michael? Uh, having served in the surface fleet, uh, what other meals uh, were available uh, that were worth a mention? We've heard about the chips, which are sacrosanct. You can't take those off the off the menu. But what else was there uh, that um, was a big activity for, for sailors on board the surface ships? Well, as John has mentioned, casting back to his earlier days as a cook, some of those options are still being served, and this includes the occasional brains and other offals. 
I also recall the DCO food tech suggesting we stop serving chips as often as we do on Torrens. The PO cook was Murray McAuliffe, I believe, who had a certain understanding of what sailors really wanted. These days, there is nothing that cannot be offered within reason and resource availability, and that touches on what Amy discussed earlier too. The addition of both equipment technology and food science advancements has opened a gateway for the shift in the way we do things and what it is we serve to our crews too. This is particularly true with a keen focus on fresh produce and less preserved items, as much as they are still essential. The quality in frozen goods is equal to fresh in a lot of instances, which enables increased menu selections for rotation to avoid repetition, yet still provides some of those old school staples alluded to earlier. Essentially, we have learnt to present meals with a more authentic appearance and taste of the Orient. We have not forgotten the European and Mediterranean influence that are also a foundation to the Australian diet. Once a month theme nights include full seafood buffets with nothing missed, and still deck barbecues are still a highlight and something the crew really enjoys. And these generally provide a relaxed evening at the end of a solid work period when on deployment and can really boost morale. We don't get 100% right when satisfying the crew, but we do get bloody close. These days we have also become highly aware of the various aspects regarding cultures and religions as well as other dietary requirements and choices such as vegan, vegetarian, celiac and other intolerances and allergies. Amy, women started to go to sea in larger numbers in the early 1990s and did that have any change upon the food that was actually served in the Navy? Well, Greg, uh, this is a great question, um, and I have a lot more research to do and feedback to receive in order to answer this with more confidence. Because I'm currently of the, of the opinion there's actually no direct correlation between increased numbers of women at sea and changes in the food that were served in Navy ships. I'm thinking that any observation that this was actually the case was, was purely coincidental and that changes in the food served were reflective of cultural and dietary changes in wider society, as they've always been. But uh, I'll explore that further. Um, women first joined the Navy in the Women's Royal Australian Navy in 1941. Of the 14 of them at the time, two were cooks. The RANDs, as they were known, went to sea, some of them in 1980, then again in 1983, and with the repeal of the women's service in 1985, were advised of potential sea service liability. Some women served at sea well before the 1990s. Now, why does this matter? I think inclusion of women had already started to have an effect on the catering and hospitality in the Navy well before the 1990s. Now, in ships, any major crew change typically includes menu adjustments as new personnel with new palates, preferences and allergies become known, bar the chips, of course. Um, making an effort to include new crew members is always best practice, always. So I think, I think to look at a couple of specific ships from the 1990s, I have it on very good authority that in at least one of them, the increased number of women on board coincided with a request for vegetarian and more health conscious lower fat meals, which the cooks embraced as a challenge while they were on a long deployment. So that's one particular platform. The younger male crew members were really pleased with the inclusions of the vegetarian and, and the health conscious lower fat meals, except the chips, of course. Um, and I think that was actually reflective of the personas of the 90s and the changing Australian palate of the time. I think a shift away from fats and carbohydrates also meant less red meats and heavier pasta dishes. So I, I discussed this further with a friend of mine who served in the destroyer escorts and missile destroyers. They were male-only crews in the, in the early 90s. And, and he later also served in the Anzac frigates. He definitely noticed a difference in the food over the course of the decade. So I think I have a lot more research to do on this particular question, Greg. Thanks, Amy. Uh, wish you the best of luck in that, in that research. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to uh, conclude this episode, I'll um, ask uh, Melissa Bowers, who's been looking at the Navy cookbooks and manuals over the last hundred years, and what do you think has been the biggest change that has occurred in that hundred year period? Thanks, Greg. Well, as you've heard today, several changes can be observed over the last hundred years, and in particular through technology, refrigeration and ship design, moving towards the cafeteria-style messing I mentioned earlier, which influenced what could be cooked and how it could be cooked, but also through immigration and through culture, which Amy mentioned. 
So just touching on technology, I just have a really funny example. And um, when you think about it, it's quite interesting. Uh, my favourite example of, of change in technology is in the evolution of the humble barbecue. As portable barbecues and portable gas bottles were invented in the 1950s and then refined in the 1960s, born was the steel beach barbecue, where the ship's company would gather on the upper decks and enjoy some rest and recuperation, which was especially a morale booster with the double beer issue. But in the essence of today, I'll focus on the change in immigration and culture. Today's modern catering in the Navy is reflected through the changes in government immigration policies, especially during the second part of the 20th century, from the 1960s and the 1970s, and the introduction of these new cultures into our ship's company. So as the Australian population became more multicultural, gradually over that second latter part of the century, we started getting sailors and ship's crew of more diverse backgrounds. And this gradually changed the expectations of the ship's personnel, especially when it came to food. As we moved into the 70s and 80s, and John told us earlier, some shore establishments, such as HMAS Cerberus, the Royal Australian Navy Recruit School, started introducing more variety in cooking Asian and other international foods, which was interesting because the variety of foods on ships was still quite bland with meat and three veg. But it was understandable because shore establishments did not have the same constraints as deployable ships did. But what this meant was cooks had to keep up with the evolution of the demographics of the ship's company and their expectations that meat and three veg has passed its use-by date, pun intended, and they had to start keeping the menu palatable and interesting for all. A hundred years ago, you ate what you were lucky enough to be given on board. But through time, cooks have had to transform their way of thinking and their approach to food preparation, which has changed for the better through technology. And they also had to develop their culinary skills and training, which they did. But most importantly, cooks now had to be able to cater for a ship's company from a much more diverse background. And so from the late 90s and into the 2000s, as Amy mentioned, food allergies, vegetarians, vegans, pescatarians, dietary requirements based on religious and cultural beliefs, all of these things now had to be considered by cooks in the Royal Australian Navy. The one thing that hasn't changed over 100 years is the knowledge that food is one of the highest morale boosting aspects of the ship's company, and I don't think that will ever change. Thanks, Melissa. I, I think you're right. I don't think that will ever change at all. Finally, I'd like to ask uh, John, uh, Michael and Amy each uh, if they have any uh, final stories or anecdotes or information about uh, cooking in the Navy. Over to you, John. Yes, thanks, Greg. <laughs> I could go on forever. Uh, but I think the language over my period from 19, the 1960s uh, all the way through to around about the 19, late 1980s, 1990s, the, the language around food has changed dramatic, dramatically. The, a lot of it was a hangover from the Royal Navy. And when I actually researched for my Cooking on Submarines uh, publication, uh, that is available through the uh, Submarine Museum in Holbrook, I found that there was a lot of language I simply couldn't use and I won't use today uh, because of the way that the sailors and through generations, through many, many, many years, particularly, as I said, through the Royal Navy, had referring to food items. And a lot of it revolved around I'll just use one example, kidneys. Yeah, what's the function of the kidney? The sauté kidneys, the menu for many years would not read, and sauté kidneys was a very popular dish for many years, 63 the 60s and 70s, would not read sauté kidneys. And we can cut this out if necessary, but the, the, the sailors called it for many, many years piss strainers. I'll leave it at that. It was a language of many, many, many dishes that was known to the sailors 
not by what we would term today or what you would expect to see on a menu at a restaurant. The, the meals, the food was referred to in the Navy, again, right up to, I'd say, around about the 1990s, everyone referred to the meals as scran. Scran. Again, come from the Royal Navy, and it was the Royal Navy's practice to supplement the sailors' diet with sultanas, currants, raisins, and nuts. Hence, scram. And I grew up, my generation and beyond, referring to our meals, we're going to scram. We're going to go and have scram. What time is scram on? Not time, not what time is dinner on or what, what's the meal today. It was scram. Melissa mentioned, one thing that Melissa mentioned was uh, barbecues. Believe it or not, on a submarine, we could actually have a barbecue. On the surface, of course, we could take a portable barbecue up onto the casing and the gas bottle and we could set up a barbecue. Good old Aussie bangers, not those tin Royal Navy bangers that would have, would have got thrown over the side, but we could have a, if the weather was kind, nice, flat, calm day, we could take the barbecue, and it was very, very popular. We'd all go up there, shorts, maybe no shot, no uh, nothing on the top. Nice hot weather. Maybe we we could we would uh, they would stop the submarine and we'd have a we'd all jump over the side and have a swim, and have a barbecue. So even a submarine would carry a barbecue. But finally, I'll just say, the role of the cook on board a ship for our listeners. From the day they joined the Navy, like every sailor and officer that joins the Navy, you really are multi-skilled. The cook on the ship was not just a cook, or on the establishment was not just a cook. They on a on a ship they would ha they could have also a position of damage control. We were we every naval personnel is trained to repair damage to your ship, damage control. So at action stations, cooks would be in damage control parties ready to race and repair damage. First aid parties. Everyone in the Navy, everyone in the Defence Force is qualified it's to a certain level in first aid. Cooks would, become, would be first aid parties on your ship. A very important role uh, throughout the Defence Force parade and ceremonial. Cooks would take off their their apron, put on their uh, formal uniform, pick up a weapon and become part of a guard, uh, a ceremonial ceremonial occasions. So the, the, the role of the cook is, yes, the training is extensive. Uh, now they get trained through to civilian qualification, uh, which kicked off away around the 1980s. Uh, but there were many other roles that would be expected of a cook uh, on your ship or uh, or on your submarine. But I think that's enough from me for now. But thank you very, very much for the opportunity to uh, be part of this team today. Thanks, John. Uh, Michael, have you got anything that you'd like to add? After 36 years, Greg, I reckon I could add a few very colourful stories that would make for some very funny listening indeed. But we'll get a few people in trouble, I reckon. Uh, just as a quick one, though, regarding lamb's brains. I was Judy Kellick at the old main galley at Cerberus, and a young recruit came forth at the complaint one breakfast. He was looking a little reluctant, but took the bold step and politely said, excuse me, leader, but I'd like to make a complaint about breakfast. Looking at his plate and seeing what was on there, I was ready to have a chuckle and looked at the Judy recruit school PO with a wry smile. I simply replied, sorry to hear, mate, what's wrong? He came back with, I've been deceived, leader, and I don't think it's right. Me? Really? Who is the culprit? What is it that you've been deceived with, I asked. These, leader. I was told that they, that they were chicken nuggets, and after I ate one, others laughed at me and said they were brains. 
Well, as you can imagine, I had a slight burst of laughter and I was ready to have a more serious discussion with the poor bloke. The PO simply said, allow me, mate, I'll sort this one. The poor recruit got an absolute ripping and was told he could either apologise for being foolish enough to believe anyone serves chicken nuggets at breakfast or take his seat and finish them off. Though I don't recall it being this polite, though. The young recruit duly apologised and took his plate to the scullery. So to answer John's query on recruits being shown through the line by the chief cook, that just doesn't happen anymore. Uh, let me close in saying thanks for uh, the opportunity and, uh, and joining, uh, joining my colleagues in this podcast, and uh, I wish you all well. Thank you very much. And finally, Amy, uh, in your 24 years of service in the REN, uh, have you got uh, any interesting anecdotes uh, regarding the uh, produce of meals on board ships uh, and chips are sacrosanct? Yes, of course. Of course they are, Greg. Look, there are plenty of stories. That's, that is for sure. Um, and Mel and I hope to capture a lot in our book as, we, as we're researching and, and finding more and more interesting little anecdotes. Um, but one I thought I'd offer today was following the theme about not wanting to give up valuable freezer space. It reminds me of when we were deploying for what we thought was going to be around eight months in 2018. HMAS Melbourne was embarking a new commanding officer at the same time as storing ship. And not unlike Ken Sparg before them, the team were utilising all space available. It included this XO's flat executive officer's flat, uh, some of the space in my cabin. Um, there were extra boxes of Australian products all the way down Collins Street, middle of the ship one morning, as the old and the new commanding officers embarked. It was a complete schmozzle of tomato sauce, Tim Tams, Vegemite, Milo, you name it, the quartermaster and the officer of the day were most displeased, which of course is very funny. Um, anyway, to, to one commanding officer, I, I sort of said, uh, oh, welcome aboard, sir. Well, you can see we are well prepared for the next few months. And to the other, I said, good morning, sir. I know it's a mess. Please don't start. Just leave it with us. We'll get to it. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. Uh, my thanks to Amy Blacker, Melissa Bowers, John Goss and Michael Olickson for their thoughts on food in the REN. And remember that chips are sacrosanct and must always be on the menu. Thank you all for joining me. Thank Thanks, you Greg. Thank you.